When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, at least 50 pounds heavier than the last episode of the show before the show podcast, which came prior to Thanksgiving. Uh, the three of us welcome you into our uh, final episode of November. We're hitting the last month of the calendar year 2023. I did not, in case you're wondering, uh, mean collectively. I just meant that I gained 50 pounds last week at Thanksgiving. And Yeah, I was going to ask if I'm that was spread it. around. No, no. It's it was just, like 16 and a third or two thirds, I guess, amongst the all of us. Yeah, wow. Sam and I lost weight actually, and uh, yeah. I lost twenty pounds. Sam lost twenty pounds, and Tyler gained ninety. Pounds. I gained ninety pounds. Uh, <laughs> it's just a fifty. It's a fifty. Uh, it's like a plus minus rating in hockey or basketball. It's just where I'm plus fifty, and these two guys are uh, on the writer side. Although I guess plus would never mind. That's not important. Uh, yeah, I ate a lot of food. That's the uh, that's the lesson of last week. Uh, hi, gents. Welcome in uh, to this week's episode of the show. Before the show in New York City, Benjamin Hill and Sam Dykstra reunited and uh i am back home in denver colorado on very little sleep from a college basketball road trip how are you guys doing well i, I just want to issue the first correction of this episode already because that's what we'd like to do is issue corrections while we are indeed recording on november 30th this is the first episode of december that's when true. it drops for our listening public tomorrow we have now moved into December. November is in the books as far as this podcast is concerned. This does come out on December. I want to see if you guys have heard of this. Have you heard about the Wham Challenge? Oh, no. But does it have to do with that song? Yes, but... I hate that song so much. So, no, you might enjoy this. It's You try to avoid that song as long as you can. Oh, I would enjoy that. So you lose the Wham Challenge the first time you hear it. Although I think I lost already because uh, I was in uh, I was in New York City last week. And, uh, one of the, this is the thing that has kind of taken off since the last time I was in New York, the, the petty cab bike guys, they're just blasting music constantly now, like all the time. They're just blasting music. And they have like led lights in the back of the, the little petty cab thing. But yeah, they're all blasting Christmas carols. And, uh, I think I heard the wham song. So, but I bring that up to say, it, oh, cause it only starts in December on December 1st. Fantastic. If I invented the rules, it would have started on Black Friday. Right. Because uh, that feels like the start of the holiday season to me. And that's a debate we can have another time is when does the holiday season begin? But according to the rules, as they've been told to me, it begins on December 1st. So it's like the game, which I have now lost because I'm still a high schooler. Uh, it, once you hear the Wham song, you have lost the challenge and you are out. So Man. amongst the three of us, well, let's see who makes it longest. I really hope I win. Because I that song nothing puts me in a in a, the opposite of the holiday spirit more than that song by Wham. Pretty much anything by Wham. Puts Wait, me the in song the we're talking about is spirit. What, "Careless Whisper." <laughs> yes, Ben has been sitting here going through his Wham knowledge, for... <laughs> his Wham catalog, the mental catalog. Uh, I know "Careless Whisper" and what's the other, and "Wake Me Up Before You Go Go." 
Yeah. Don't know any other Ram song. That one's like uh, which is the nine. I had that as my alarm clock for a long time because I'm a walking cliche or a sleeping cliche and then an awake cliche as it goes. Uh, I'm on just the right amount of sleep that I'm going to laugh very hard at all the jokes in this episode of the show before the show today uh, as we welcome you in. Uh, yeah, Tyler, Sam, Ben, it's another uh, episode of your friendly neighborhood minor league baseball podcast. The only official one of minor league podcasts, mind you. And uh, as we round the corner into the final month of the calendar year we got so much to talk about on this week's episode of the show before the show uh i must our interview segment i was a little late uh arriving back home but we will uh preview our interview segment coming up here in a little bit and uh before we do all that let's talk about some news from around the world of minor league baseball with our very own benjamin hill who was uh as consummate a professional as could be put out a newsletter during the short holiday week last week time knows no bounds for the Ben's Biz Beat, uh, what was the thing you were most excited about putting into the uh, into the newsletter last week? Well, the newsletter had a lot of uh, logo information that we have talked about on the podcast. Uh, I believe you and I, that was a Samless episode where we went through some of that. But, uh, you know, new logo in Lake Elsinore and uh, new alternates in Erie and places like that. So did a, a new logo roundup. Um, and, of course, also linked to our, our previous episode talking with... Uh, Dan Simon and um, how he designed the new Rome Emperor's logo, among many other things. So go back and listen to that episode if you haven't already. Uh, but in the episode or in the newsletter, I also just uh, used a little of the space I had. I mean, technically, I have infinite space. It's a newsletter. It could just go on forever. But within the word count, I give myself uh, I had a little bit of a roundup of you know minor league baseball news. And I think a few items are interesting to hit on here on the podcast as well. Uh, one the way I phrased it on Twitter and in the newsletter, so I'll stay consistent, but good news for fans of old, awesome ballparks. Uh, this ballpark in particular, Jackie Robinson Ballpark, Daytona Beach, Florida, home of the Daytona Tortugas. I mean, that field has been essentially in the same location at on Daytona Beach's City Island since 1914. Uh, it's the oldest ballpark in minor league baseball. Hosted Florida State League for the first time in 1920. Uh, Jackie Robinson spent spring training there in 1946, which is how it got its name, I believe, in 1990 or so. It was renamed Jackie Robinson Ballpark because the games he spent in spring training with the Dodgers in 1946. I mean, he was technically with the Montreal Royals, their farm club that year. Those were his first games ever. Um with the Dodgers organization and therefore the first games in which he was integrating baseball. Um so tons of history in this ballpark, tons of classic charm. Um, obviously, with the standards in place now for minor league ballparks, you have to have some concern for a place like Daytona Beach um, and its ability to stay current You know, when you're going back over 100 years in one facility. Um, but the Daytona Tortugas have announced a 20-year lease extension with the city of Daytona Beach, uh, calling for a ton of, uh, you know, and it doesn't just keep them in the ballpark, but a lot of... Um, Ballpark improvements coming first will be, as is often the case, less public facing, but things getting them up to par, up to current standards on a player development side. But there will be um, you know, some fan facing renovations in the near future in the coming years as well. And um, I just think that's really great news because um, in all of minor league baseball, that's a very special place. And in the Florida State League, it's a special place because it's the only ballpark that was not built as a spring training facility first and foremost. So it just has a different kind of vibe, charm, 
uh, history, intimacy, access. Um, it's just a great place. So it was really excited to see that news out of Daytona Beach and uh, just excited to see that's a situation where the team in the city just understood how important it was uh, to keep the team in town and uh, work together to make it happen. There's a lot of details uh, through Daytona Beach local media as well as on the Tortugas website uh, with some of the specifics if you're interested in that. And go to Daytona Beach if you have not already. So a little good news there to start your month of December if you haven't heard that yet. That is very cool. Uh, um, and also, you know, hey, we're a minor league baseball context. Uh, when we're talking minor league baseball, capital M, you know, we're, we're covering the 120 affiliated teams. But, you know, we like to talk about other teams as well at times, you know, partner leagues, teams that used to be part of the minor league landscape, leagues that le- used to be part of the minor league landscape. Uh, the Appalachian League, which was, you know, through 2020, a short season rookie level, advanced rookie level circuit, you know, is now summer collegiate. And we had the news a couple months ago that Princeton who were the Rays for a lot of years in the affiliated days. This is Princeton, West Virginia. Um, Then they were the Princeton Whistle Pigs the last couple seasons in the new summer collegiate Appy League context. Princeton decided they could not do it anymore, essentially. It's a very small market, small team, older ballpark. Um, And the just like in the affiliated ranks, you know, there's standards for the Appy League and ballparks and the level of money needed to bring that ballpark up to speed. Um, you know, the community just said, we we can't do that. So that was a loss. Um, but was as with many losses, then it opens up the door for something else. And so now we know that the Appy League is going to remain a 10-team league and that 10th team, no longer Princeton, West Virginia, is now Huntington, West Virginia, that did have Appy League baseball for a time in the 90s, I believe from 1990 to 1995. They were the Cubs for most of those years. And then the final season, 1995, they were the River Ramblers, a co-op team, you know, a concept that is never coming back, I don't think. But, you know, co-op teams were when teams, uh, you know, had essentially too many players in their farm system uh, for their proper affiliates. So co-op teams would be a mix of players from all sorts of organizations. So the last time Huntington had a team in the Appy League, they were the River Ramblers, a co-op team that were really bad team as most co-op teams were. And they were managed by present day minor league manager, Phil Wellman in his very first minor league season in 1995. Uh, Phil Wellman most recently uh, is manager of the El Paso Chihuahuas, AAA Uh, San Diego, but he got his start managing in Huntington, West Virginia. The new Huntington team is going to play at a ballpark um, on the campus. It's it's the ballpark used for Marshall. I guess that's Marshall University. Marshall University. Yeah. Um, So it's that um, sharing your ballpark with a college program um, set up, which works in leagues like the Appy League when your season doesn't start till it, uh, you know, well into June, at which point the college is done. So it's one of those situations where Marshall University will play there for their season, then they'll leave, and then we have Appy League Baseball in Huntington, West Virginia. So welcome. Welcome back, Huntington, West Virginia. And and as of now, they are going to be called, or they're being called right now the Tri-State, which is in reference to West Virginia, Ohio, and Kentucky. There is no team name that we know of. Yeah, it's just been referred to as Tri-State. I doubt they'll call themselves the Tri-State Huntington Tri-Staters or the Tri-State Huntingtons or something. Uh, I imagine like the rest of the Appy League. Um, river Ramblers, I feel like, does fit pretty well. It does. Bring like back the, the river. river yeah. Bring back the River Ramblers. Get Phil Wellman to the ballpark to throw out a first <laughs> pitch. Have representatives in the, the local 
co-op. He has to throw out a he has to throw out a rosin bag though. That's got to be Phil yeah, Wellman's like a thing. like a grenade, like a grenade. That's all. That's all I will accept from Phil Wellman. Yeah, Phil Wellman. For those who don't know, uh, look him up on YouTube. Yeah, yes. he's a. Uh, you know, he's had a distinguished career and I don't want him to be defined by his uh, on-field meltdowns, but he's had some of the best, including one that when he was with, I want to say, double A Mississippi. That sounds right. Plus ago. I think that's where yeah, I want to say that was like 2009, maybe. Yeah. That was like he in did. the early days of going viral. Like that, that thing blew up and that was, that was like on the cutting edge of being able to go viral. Yeah. And his, his ejection was like performance art in that case i mean he was crawling around on the ground he picked up the <laughs> rosin bag and lobbed it like a grenade um yeah we don't see those kind of manager meltdowns much anymore yeah, we don't and uh that is a sad thing so if you're a manager a minor league manager listening to this podcast which i'm sure many of you are feel free to melt down next year we want to see it I would very much enjoy that. Um, all right, Ben, there is a story that you've got on the site uh, that is, it's a great one. It is about the ballpark chef for the Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs, who, by the way, Ben also has a logo roundup uh, up on the site. And man, Lehigh Valley just continues to turn out great stuff, including their Sunday uniforms this year, which are kind of a takeoff on the, the Philly Sunday uniforms. They are gorgeous. Um, but let's talk about Alessandro Buccino, who is the ballpark chef in Allentown, Pennsylvania, and uh, is a very unique ballpark chef for his background and his road into minor league baseball. Yeah, I keep saying that. I thought hey, I always think I'm done the road trip stories, and then I was going through uh, my my notes, and I was like, oh, I didn't write a story about this guy, but I interviewed him when I was in Lehigh Valley uh, in that would have been August. Um, Alessandro Buccino, as his name might give away, is not just Italian, but he is. From Italy, born and raised in Italy, and now he is a ballpark chef in a minor league baseball stadium. Um, so I, I got word on his unique story when I visited the Iron Pigs and set up an interview with him. Um, and just kind of had to profile how does a guy who grew up in Italy, he's from southern Italy, I guess the greater Naples area, uh, was living on the Amalfi Coast for a while. Um, you know, of course, always loved food being an Italian, not to stereotype, but. You know, he he loved food and food and Italy's food culture, but he did not work in food service. And he's now well into adulthood, still living in Italy, seeing the beach from his balcony. Uh, but he met a woman, also an Italian, uh, who was living in Italy, but her parents owned a pizzeria in the Poconos, uh, the Pocono Mountains of Pennsylvania. And, you know, he had fallen in love with his woman, now his wife, and they have some kids. And uh, they went to Pennsylvania and worked at... Um, his first job upon moving from Italy to the United States to the Pocono mountains was to work at this pizzeria. And, you know, he said he started at the bottom, which is like a general helper at a Poconos pizzeria, but that started his career in food service. And he had been working as a sous chef looking for advancement when he got wind that the, uh, iron pigs in Allentown, Pennsylvania, Lehigh Valley, um, you know, not too far from the Poconos, um, you know, had an opening and he knows nothing about baseball. In fact, on his uh, Iron Pig staff bio game, it says like favorite baseball memory. It says like, I slept through the, my first game. Like, I think he went to like a Yankees game once and was like, oh, this is boring. This isn't soccer. And just like slept through it. Um, but he got hired as a chef because he'd been working in food service now for the better part of the last decade or so. And um, is now, he's not the kind of, he's not like the food and beverage director in terms of like the sort of, 
job responsibility being to create all these wild you know, food items that the the iron pigs uh, are really well known for. You know, your bacon on a stick and your pork parfait and everything. He's the executive chef, which means that he's often doing group areas and uh, you know sweets, group areas, uh, large amounts of food for large numbers of people. And uh, he's just completed his first job or his first season on the job in minor league baseball after a career or a life in Italy and then in a pretty unpredictable food service career in. Uh, in the United States of America and specifically Pennsylvania. So pretty uh, interesting background and the kind of story I like to uh, shine a little light on whenever I get the chance. The best thing about the end of that story is um, you ask him how you would say iron pigs in Italian. And he said, uh, after a pause, quote, it's better that we don't. Yeah. He just was like, yeah, let's just not, let's just not go there. Um I don't know why. Maybe just thought it sounded ridiculous, but I'd like to hear. I would have liked to hear a native Italian yeah. say "Iron Pigs" in Italian, but that uh, that did not happen. And um, fellas, before we go back to the topic of former, formerly affiliated leagues uh, with new franchises, uh, the Pioneer League, which used to be along with the Appy League, um, an advanced rookie circuit for many years, all the way through 2020, is now independent, and. Uh, Pioneer League currently had 10 teams and they've added an 11th and there will be a 12th. And we don't know where that one will be yet, but we know it will be in the state of California. It'll be a sister team of sorts to a team that was recently announced in Oakland, California. So all the drama with the A's and moving Las Vegas and blah, blah, blah. uh, The Pioneer League sensed an opening and the Oakland Ballers will begin play next year in the Pioneer League. So that'll be another interesting one. New team in Huntington in the Appy League and a new team in Oakland, California, the Oakland Ballers, which, as Sam has pointed out, is the Oakland Bees. Yes. I mean, they can call themselves the Ballers in the same way that the Athletics call themselves the Athletics, but everybody's going to call them the Bees. Even in the press conference, they had a logo, I think, that – Reference that they will be the bees. So that's it's very clever. Um, I'm excited for the people of Oakland to have a baseball team after you know the major league team moves out. Hopefully, they give full throated support uh, to the bees in the way they they have with the A's. You know the, those who have been super loyal to the A's. Um, you know it's a sad situation for them. So getting a pioneer league team, it's not the same as a major league team, but there is a team nearby. Yeah, and I can see that doing really well. I mean, we're not talking major league level. We're talking the independent Pioneer League. But I can see um, a fan base like Oakland's really rallying enthusiastically to a team that is their own. And I'd imagine right from the jump, there's going to be a a strong fan culture for the Oakland Ballers. And another team coming in Northern California, the Pioneer League, uh, to be announced later this offseason, which will bring the uh, number of teams up in the league to 12. And of course, a lot of those teams uh, playing in the league now are you know ones we remember from the affiliated days in places like uh, you know Missoula, Montana. You know now the now the Paddleheads or uh, Great Falls, the Voyagers, and, and teams such as that. So there's it's a big sprawling circuit now. They seem to have found success in their independent era and uh, keep on expanding. It, it was eight, I believe. There's just eight teams in the Pioneer League team in the Pioneer League uh, for a time. Now they have an eleventh and adding a twelfth. So congratulations to the Oakland Bees. Do we know where they're playing yet? I'm not sure, actually. That's a good question. they've announced the the ballpark. They did not announce the ballpark in the press release. Uh, I imagine they've got a line on somewhere, and I imagine it's not the Oakland Coliseum. I was going to say, it would be very ironic if it was the Oakland Coliseum. Yeah, so stay tuned. Stay tuned for that. But uh, happy to see expansion in these former minor league circuits. Um, And uh, 
Hopefully we we can all get out there one day and check it out. Field trips. So, yeah, I actually would really like that. I, uh, I I have not spent a lot of time in the Bay Area. I would really honestly love to go to a game at the Coliseum before that team leaves. I would like to. Everybody talks about it like it's just an otherworldly experience, and I want it just for that. Yeah, you can say I experienced this before it's uh, before it was gone and before its demise. All right, fellas, uh, before we go to the interview, I want to ask you a question from something that has popped up on baseball Reddit today. It dates to a story written in the Guardian in 2014 in which the question was asked, how high can a human being throw a baseball? And uh, this, the answer here is that a pitcher in Major League Baseball with an 80-mile-per-hour fastball could conceivably – throw a baseball over 10 giraffes standing on top of each other. Aroldis Chapman, the holder of the world record for the fastest recorded pitch in history, could in theory launch a baseball 14 giraffes high. I'm not sure how tall exactly these giraffes are. I'm not sure what the average height of a giraffe is. Average height of giraffe, Google says, 16 to 18 feet. Uh, how many giraffes could you chuck a ball over? Just straight up into the air. It's got to have enough of an Ugh. arc to get over the giraffes. How many giraffes are you clearing, Sam, Ben? What was the 80 mile an hour mark again? 80 miles an hour. It says 10 giraffes. But it also says that a, an average person could throw it only three giraffes. It says a person with a, quote, reasonably good arm, unquote, could manage five. But, like, I don't know, maybe it's because we work in baseball. I think of, like, throwing 80 miles an hour, that's a reasonably good arm, and that person can get 10. Yeah, I mean, there, hmm. Sam's taking this very seriously, and I'm really happy about it. I want to say six. Yeah, I think I would go six. Six feels like a good number. Like, I don't have a good arm. I'm not throwing 80 miles an hour. I'm yeah, not no, throwing 75. Either. I ain't me throwing either. 70. Yeah. Um, but like, even in my even in my prime, even in my uh, athletic prowess glory days, which were uh, not glorious by any stretch of the imagination, I'm still not getting it to 10 giraffes. Absolutely no. not. I'm not, you know. And there's yeah, no I think I have a hard you time. can really do to throw it Right, side. to throw it vertically. Exactly. That's the tricky thing. If it was like yeah. how many giraffes could you throw it over who are standing? Well, I guess giraffes aren't really long. What's a long animal? Can you throw it over a blue whale? You know, if you're just throwing <laughs> If the blue whale's laying on a, on a flat surface, could you throw it over the distance of a blue whale? I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, I think I'd go on like my best day athletically ever, maybe six and a half giraffes. Six and a half giraffes. That poor seventh giraffe that gets the ball stuck <laughs> in its stomach because you, you couldn't get lop, you just lop that part of the giraffe off. <laughs> ben, how many giraffes are you going? I think at this juncture, since a lot of my life is coming to terms with the fact that I'm worse at things than I imagine <laughs> I am, and that it's only getting worse. Not yeah. to be negative, but I'm just feeling uh, I'm not old, and I'm not going to start acting, you know, doing like senior citizen cosplay or anything. But <laughs> you know. I'm, into my 40s now my mid 40s and i just don't really have it anymore in a lot of ways so i'm just gonna say like you know four giraffes four and a half you know just okay. not not say something and then have to hold to it and the thing is, is when like, they this is such an honor system challenge because i've only seen like maybe two giraffes ever at a time the the idea that we could get that many giraffes together one and, and then two have them stacked up yeah 
like a this like is... a giraffe pyramid as opposed yeah, to a human so pyramid. It's all theoretical, but I'm just gonna I'm gonna be modest and just say not all that many giraffes. Okay. It just it's just not happening for me anymore. I think I if if I tried this and they were to actually stack up six giraffes, I would look and be like, there's no way I'm getting a ball over more than three of these giraffes. That would be my I'd feel the same way. I'd feel the same way, Tyler. All right, you guys. Uh, the interview segment this week uh, is a fun one. I was not present for it, so I'm going to let you tee it up. Yeah, we uh, got pictures from all throughout uh, minor league baseball and asked them that question. How many giraffes could they <laughs> could they throw a ball vertically past? That's what we call a tease in the business when yeah. I brought that question up. The answer will surprise you. Um, no. This year, this is the second year that this has been a thing, but uh, awards, league-by-league awards for groundskeepers and uh, clubhouse managers were announced. And, uh, you know, at this podcast, we always like to celebrate people like that who do essential work in the game of baseball but don't get a lot of credit. And uh, we have talked to a clubhouse manager, the clubhouse manager for the AA Bowie Bay Sox, home clubhouse manager, John Weinberg. And uh, he's here to uh, tell us about his job, what it's like working with this uh, up-and-coming uh, crop of Baltimore Orioles prospects, and just a lot of uh, granular detail about the work of being a clubhouse manager, the essential work of being a clubhouse manager in minor league baseball. So here's our interview with John Weinberg, clubhouse manager for the Bowie Bay Sox. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Earlier this week, the Clubhouse Manager of the Year awards were announced, uh, honoring what is often an unsung profession in the world of minor league baseball, uh, the guys who manage the clubhouse. And that is a job that has a lot of moving parts, a lot of different components. I think it's always interesting to shine a light on it and the people who are doing it well. And to that end, this is today's guest. Eastern League Home Clubhouse Manager of the Year with the Bowie Bay Sox, John Weinberg. John, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Well, first of all, congrats on the award. Um, I know you've been doing this job in some capacity or other, not necessarily with Bowie, but better part of a decade. Um, you know, what does it mean to be recognized like this by the industry um, you know, and have an actual award for the job you do? Uh, it's, it's a great feeling. I mean, it's... I, they just started doing the award, uh, I think, last year. Yeah, and to win it the second year, it's, I mean, that's awesome. I'm really excited about it, and it goes to show that it doesn't like our job's not unnoticed by a lot of people. So that's awesome. Yeah, and uh, you know, I was doing a little research on you, i.e., googling your name. You know, I saw I found your LinkedIn <laughs> page. Um, so you've yeah, you've been doing uh, clubhouse managing for quite a long time uh so you had a stint in, with the clinton lumber kings the frederick keys uh the complex in sarasota this is your third season with Bowie that you just completed um you know this is a job that maybe like a lot of baseball jobs but doesn't necessarily seem to have as 
natural path inwards to it, or, you know, people might not know how you go about getting a job, you know, in clubhouse management. So what is you know, your background and your career path that led you into this industry and this specific line of work? <laughs> it, it's kind of funny. I was, uh, I was in high school and I was working on the grounds crew in Hagerstown. And I did that uh, for a couple summers and then went off to college, came back. And uh, the home clubhouse guy who was there in 2010 saw me one night after the game and was like, uh, hey, do you, do you mind uh, running the visiting side? And I was like, well, what do I have to do? And he kind of explained it to me. And then I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll give it a shot for a homestand. And then after that, I mean, I went back to school, uh, just got my associate's degree, and then ended up going right back into the clubhouse right after that. Yeah, and so you are obviously working in Maryland now with uh, the Bowie Bay Sox, but you're Mar- you talked about working for the Hagerstown grounds crew in Hagerstown, Maryland. Are you a Maryland guy? Is that where it all starts? I uh, I actually grew up in West Virginia, like uh, probably about 15 minutes outside of uh, outside of Hagerstown. So I would go to Suns games and Keys games growing up all the time because it was pretty close. And then, uh, but no, I I'm from West Virginia. <laughs> gotcha. And uh, you know, before we get in the specifics of this past season, and you know, more specifically about the work you're doing now. Um, you know, for people who might not know, and I know there's not necessarily such a thing as a quote unquote typical day in the life of a clubhouse manager. Uh, but what is, you know, the teams at home starting a six game homestand, whatever the case might be, um, you know, what, when you go to the ballpark, what is a, a job like on a game day in, in terms of the tasks you have to do and all the little um, things you have to complete to get, have everyone ready to play the game? Um, I mean, I usually show up between, nine nine thirty and then uh whatever i didn't finish up the night before usually just some towels and you know reloading some uh snacks and some fridges and stuff like that um i end up getting all the towels folded setting the field up you know bringing the coolers out uh bringing uh the ball caddy machine stuff like that making sure they have everything they need for bp and that usually takes me from like nine thirty until noon grab some lunch and then once i have lunch guys start showing up guys start showing up at around like 1 one thirty, and then you know just being available from one until four when i get uh when i get the pregame food set up and then you know uh they're out hitting bp and doing in and out and stuff like that so um uh get the get the food set up, guys are rolling back in, get laundry rolling. Um, you know, you, you always get asked those random, Hey, do I have this? Do I have that? And of course, you know, if I don't, I'll run out and grab it or whatever. Um, then get that, get that, uh, BP laundry rolling. And then after that guys start getting ready for game, try to keep the vibe, you know, vibes up in the clubhouse and then, uh, game starts and I'm back to work for, four or five innings. And then I finally get a chance to sit down and watch a little bit of the game. And then by, by the time the seventh inning rolls around, I'm getting the post game food, get that set up, get to watch maybe like the last inning. And then it's, it's go time, like laundry cleats, everything I got to do at the end of the night to make sure guys are ready for the next day. Yeah. And, and thank you for taking everybody through that because I, I, 
anybody who's been in a clubhouse, we've been in it as reporters. We we're seeing you guys buzzing around doing a million things at once, but I don't think a lot of fans listening know exactly just how integral you guys are to the sport. Um, th- take me through, you know, Ben said, uh, this is your third season in Bowie, Bowie being a double A club, double A. When we talk to players, they say, this is where you start to feel it. This is where you start to feel close to the show. What is the buzz like in a double A clubhouse? Um, I mean, so obviously the last three years we've had, you know, a ton of talent. So, especially in double a. So, I mean, the, the vibes are always high and guys are excited to play and, you know, it, you'll get those guys that go through slumps and you're just trying to make sure that, you know, they're still comfortable. Cause like, that's part of baseball. You're going to go through that. And if you can, if you can kind of help these guys navigate, like not with any like actual information, but just making sure they're comfortable and, ready and have everything they need i mean that goes a long way too yeah and and is that more of an individualized approach like how much are you trying to get to know these guys per person or are you trying to follow kind of an organizational philosophy that comes from the o's um i mean honestly i'm just like my personality is my personality and when you work with guys you know every day for nine months you get to know them pretty personally so um, it's one of the things I enjoy about the job and I, I like to think that the guys can, you know, confide in me and, you know, just kind of let their hair down a little bit. Yeah, for sure. And I'm not going to try to get you to tell any stories out of school or, or tattle on anybody, but as you've got I mean, to feel, feel free, feel free if you want to, <laughs> that's you volunteering, not me. Uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but as you've gotten to know these guys and Orioles fans are getting to know some of them very quickly, Gunnar Henderson, Adley Rutschman, you know, two stars of the sport now, just not in Baltimore uh, or not just in Baltimore. As you've gotten to know these guys, who are some guys who you think from a personality standpoint, Baltimore fans should really get excited about? I, I mean, from a personal personality standpoint, uh, everyone. <laughs> I mean, all of those guys are great. Adley, Gunner, Grayson, DL, Batista, Dean, Brad. Like, those guys, I, Ballman, I, like, I, I feel bad just naming guys, but, like, everyone's awesome. It's 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 incredible to see like the I'm trying to think of the right word for this, but just the team chemistry at every level with these guys. I mean, it, it, you don't see it very often. No, not not at all. Not, I know some Orioles prospects I've talked to have said the same thing. I mean, these guys have come up together. And kind of in your three years, I'm sure you've seen some changes. I mean, three years ago, we weren't talking about the Orioles as a playoff team. We are now. Do you see a trickle-down effect with that? When you see guys like Adley and Gunner make the major leagues, is there a different vibe in that clubhouse knowing, like, hey, we're not just the future. Like, we're trying to help a legit club now. Yeah, I mean, it's real now. Like, (laughs) we – like the org's done something really special, and I mean, it, the the win factor. Like the minor leagues is about developing players for the big leagues, but like the culture that they've built is like, hey, we can do both. We can win games, and we can we can you know develop players, which they've done a great job at doing both. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, you know, talking about the the fun guys who have come through that team, the this year specifically, Jackson Holiday and Samuel Desayo, those guys came up as teenagers. 
you know, yeah. day, you're getting 26, 27 year olds in that clubhouse, even some 30 year olds occasionally. All of a sudden you're dealing with teenagers who have like are I'm sure wide eyed and bushy tailed. But like, how do you deal with guys that young who are who are so wide eyed and trying to take it all in and might have different requests? Or do you have to handle those guys any differently? I mean, no, those are those are just they're just regular guys. I mean, they're young, but I mean, those guys are good <laughs> and 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 they're they're pretty groomed like. Jackson might be one of the most mature 19 year old kids I've ever met in my entire life. And uh, Basaya was only with us for like a week and a half. And most of that time it was on the road. So I didn't really get a ton of exposure to Basaya, but I mean, uh, those guys are about business and that's good for the future for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as we're talking here about how things have changed with the O's, how, has that, how has that changed your working relationship with players? Like, are they asking for different things now or how has the job kind of changed for you in the last three years? I mean, our guys are pretty low maintenance. As long as they have what they need for the game, I don't get any crazy requests or anything like that. Um, and I mean, that, that goes back to 21 when I had most of the guys that are in the big leagues now, like those guys are just, very laid back, not needy at all. Like just, I need to play, I need to do well. And that's, that's all they care about. You know, you mentioned crazy requests and then talking to clubhouse managers in the past, you know, there's often stories about the kind of things, the errands you have to run that uh, most people might not you know, think about as being part of the job. Maybe some of those you can't get into, but do you have any examples of, you know, things you just have to incorporate into your day A you know, player needs this bit of equipment or, this type of food or whatever the case may be. When I first started, it was, it was a lot more like, Hey, do you mind running to the store and getting me Chick-fil-A or, but now that like Uber eats and all those other food delivery services or services exist, like, I don't have to worry about that. Those guys will just order it on their phone or we're pretty lucky in Bowie. Cause there's a Chick-fil-A in the parking lot. And they'll just stop by there. there, you go. there you go. But um, no, it, it, it's not too bad. Every once in a while, it's like, Hey man, I totally forgot. Can you run Grammy, you know, uh, monster energy drink or something? But like I said, there's a, there's a Chick-fil-A. I, I, I got a good setup. There's a Chick-fil-A, there's a gas station and there's a BJ's wholesale, like right in the parking lot, <laughs> like the big three that I would go to on a regular basis. But Yeah. And I guess the location of Bowie stadium helps with that. It is kind of, for those who haven't been there, when you pull into the stadium, you basically go not a mall per se, but you go through a huge parking lot. So you're, you're surrounded or not just a huge parking lot, but a huge shopping complex. So yeah, you're surrounded more than most teams with a lot of uh, day-to-day player essentials. Um, You know, earlier when we talked about, or when you talked about your typical day, you know, kind of went right into it with the laundry. And obviously that is just such a huge part of the job. Um, In terms of doing laundry, you have a preferred brand of washer dryer or a, uh, (laughs) Or a uh, preferred, uh, you know, system for getting it done, or, or ways you change doing it from, uh, you know, from the start of your career to now. Because as much as on one hand it's a simple task, I'm sure there's it's also highly complicated in terms of all the coordination of everything you have to do, the size of the loads, the timing of the game, batting practice, pregame, postgame. Uh, you know, how do you uh, put that puzzle together? Uh, I'm actually pretty fortunate because I have two industrial washers and two industrial dryers, so. That's a huge help. But I remember when I was in Hagerstown, we had my first year, it was two household washers and two household dryers <laughs> in like the training room. 
And then my second year, they combined all of the laundry. So it was five household dryers and five household washers. And uh, looking back, I was like, we were up until three in the morning just trying to get laundry done. And now I've got, I've got a pretty good system that gets me out of there two, two and a half hours after the game ends. So it's not too bad. I'm usually out of there by like 1230, one o'clock. Yeah, it's not bad at all. I mean, I guess all within the perspective of this kind of job. Um, in your earlier days with laundry taking a longer time, um, maybe a day game after a night game. Yeah, I know I've t- talked to people in the past that just like, oh, I'm just sleeping at the ballpark tonight. Was it that kind of uh, kind of thing for you through the years? Oh yeah, I've done that a couple times. The old uh, we didn't we played extra innings and then we got a you know 11 a.m. kids game the next day. Well, I guess I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> but um, no, it's it, that's kind of fizzled out now that I've got a good system and there's some uh, some of the kids in Bowie help me out every night and that's always nice. There you go. Yeah, and, and looking back on this year, since we are in the off season, you've had a few months to reflect and. Obviously, it was an award-winning season. What was the highlight for you this year? Oh, man. Um, you know, like, I don't I don't spend too much time looking at, like, that kind of stuff. And I just – we have a – I actually stole this from our AAA clubhouse manager, but every win, uh, I'll turn all the lights off in the clubhouse and we'll get party lights going and music blasting. And that's my favorite because the, the days you win, you get to experience that, and the days you lose, it's – you know, a little more somber and you don't get the the full experience of club dub junior but uh, when we win it's 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 fun that's that's what i like the most yeah who got the ox cable the most in that club Ooh, probably connor lopridge was he, he was instructed to or did he seize it how does that work uh he he was i, I mean he was probably one of the more vocal guys so like he just was like, hey, where's the iPad? And he'd fire up some music. And I'd talk to him about what song we want to play when we win and, you know, like get a playlist going. So it, it was nice. Yeah, there you go. What was the theme song of the 2023 Bay Sox? Uh, I mean, our win song was No Hands by Waka Flocka. So that's pretty good. <laughs> uh, at first, uh, the first half of the season was actually Motley Crue. And we didn't have a great first half. So we switched it and changed the vibes up and switched it to Waka Flocka and won some more games. And that was, it was, it was fun. Get those speakers going, get the lights going. I think we might have to, you know, the other teams might have to start looking at that more Waka Flocka in the, the <laughs> clubhouse is moving forward. Yeah. Or at least less Motley Crue. Less Motley Crue. <laughs> yeah. yeah. um, we had a little creed going and, that uh, I, I have a love-hate relationship with them right now. <laughs> Are you saying you guys beat the Rangers to Creed? Is that what, is that what you're saying? No. I, I'm saying me and a handful of my friends may have been starting listening to Creed like a year and a half ago and then just never stopped. <laughs> <laughs> I know that game. Um, so as you look forward to 2024, what do you think are the lessons you're going to take from this year and kind of put them in, you know, non-Motley Crew? aside uh but what you know lessons are you going to kind of implement for next year uh i'm honestly i just really enjoy doing this so i've everywhere every time i change a clubhouse or start in a new place i kind of have to readjust how i do things and going into my fourth season 
I think I have a pretty good system, but I always, you know, tinker with stuff. But um, it's I, just being back in the clubhouse with the guys is that's all I need. And, you know, that and uh, making sure guys are happy is really all I care about when it comes to work. Well, the number one question, um, you know, that Sam and I get that anyone who works in baseball gets, and I'm sure you get, you know, now it's the off season. You know, what do you do in the off season? Uh, actually, I just got off a cruise with my wife and um, our AAA clubhouse guy. He he lives with me in the off season because he doesn't want to go back to Northwest Ohio. So, uh, <laughs> and he actually he won last year. He won International League uh, Clubhouse Manager of the Year last year. But um, we uh, would just hang out. We we went on that cruise, and then we have three dogs at the house. So my wife and I just relax. And she's a nurse, so she's still working. But, like, I'll go into the complex a little bit because I live down in Sarasota. And we'll just hang out with the dogs. And this time of year, we're watching Christmas movies. And just being at home is, is nice. So I really, like, I enjoy it when I'm here. Now, do you handle the laundry at home? I do. I do. And uh, I'm glad I do because, because I I like to just get it done. And, you know, she's busy. She's, she's working and I have nothing going on. So Yeah. And you got your systems already in place. So it's yeah. you're ready to roll with that. Well, you you, you mentioned the um, clubhouse manager, AAA in the Orioles system. Um, you know, what kind of community is there among clubhouse managers you know, in general, in terms of staying in touch throughout the season, in terms of, you know, sharing tips about the job, uh, in terms of, you know, maybe providing information about, you know, opportunities for career advancement or moving into an open position, you know, what's the lines of communication like uh, throughout the year with other clubhouse managers? Uh, it's wide open. I mean, uh, Adam and I, we talk three times a day, like on the phone. <laughs> So just with player moves and stuff, it makes it easier. And then obviously we're really, really close friends. So, you know, we don't, it, it, sometimes it's just nonsense. And then sometimes it's, you know, a little venting. And then the other times it's, Hey man, you're getting this guy, this guy, and this guy, like here's his sizes. And the same thing with Ross and, uh, in high a, he, uh, he always texts me, Hey man, you're getting this guy, this guy, this is, uh, this is their sizes. This is everything they need. This is what they don't have. Um, our boss is great. Jake Parker, he runs the, he's the minor league equipment manager. And uh, he, his communication is awesome. And then obviously Kent, who is uh, Jake's boss, the director of minor league operations. He, we couldn't ask for anyone better than Kent to uh, communicate with. He's great with player moves. He's, you know, always keeping us in the loop, which is, you know, half the battle. And then, it's it's nice that we have a very flowy line of communication between everyone. And just going back to you know, your career in general, one of the first your first stops in minor league baseball, the Clinton Lumber Kings in the Midwest League, Clinton, Iowa, one of the oldest ballparks uh, in minor league baseball. I believe that's now you know summer collegiate um, or independent ball of some kind now in Clinton, um, but long time minor league town, very small market, very old ballpark. You know, what are some memories that stand out from working uh, in the clubhouse for the Clinton Lumber Kings? Oh, man. I I remember when I interviewed for that job, I uh, I was talking to GM Ted Torno, who I think is still – he's still he running the Collegiate League, yeah. And um, he was like, 
uh, I was like, hey, can I see? Because I saw the field and the stadium, and I was like, I want to see the clubhouse. He's like, oh, I don't have any pictures, but I think there's a there's a video online, and it was a Walls did a commercial with um, the old clubhouse manager, and I saw the clubhouse. I was like, that doesn't those two that doesn't make sense. Like that field's an old field, and that clubhouse is really nice. So walking into that clubhouse to this day might be one of the biggest clubhouses I've ever worked in. And it was super nice. And I like, it was ready for all of the advancements of like minor league baseball. So that clubhouse, I get, I get excited about that. It's a little nerdy, but like seeing new clubhouses, <laughs> seeing new clubhouses is, is cool to me. Yeah, I can imagine it's, it's your career. So you got to see uh, what these things look like. Um, well, to close, Again, you know, congrats on the award, Double uh, A uh, Eastern League Home Clubhouse Manager of the Year. Uh, you know, we believe that clubhouse managers should get, should get more recognition in the industry. It's a it's a job that gets overlooked. You know that there should be, you know, like a bobblehead giveaway and buoy next season. You know, featuring you <laughs> and your award. That's what we think should happen. Uh, so, if you did have a bobblehead, how do you think you should be uh, portrayed? <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, thinner. but um no uh i don't know that's that's a really good question that i've never thought about um i don't know just i usually like before the guys get there i'm in like a t-shirt pair of shorts and birkenstock so (laughs) maybe that just super down to earth just uh if you ain't birkin you ain't working (laughs) (laughs) we're also gonna get you a birkenstock promo deal out of this i think that's oh that'd be that'd be dope well bobblehead (laughs) endorsements yeah there we go yeah yeah we'll sign yeah we'll sign on as your agents after this (laughs) oh perfect (laughs) but um yeah i think that's about all we have but again congratulations on on winning the award and shining some light into who you are and what you do john weinberg the home clubhouse manager for the Bowie bay Sox eastern league home clubhouse manager of the year yeah, thanks so much for joining us on the show before the show podcast. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. So there is a little bit of insight into the world of some of the most unsung heroes in all of baseball. Um, clubbies are cool people, man. That is a that is a thankless job for a whole lot of folks, and uh, it's always very cool when. You get a chance to talk to somebody like John Weinberg, and a huge thanks to him for stopping by the show, and congrats on his terrific work. And uh, Sam and I are going to get a chance to talk, I guess you can't really call it on-field stuff, but it's related to on-field stuff, uh, as the winter meetings approach. Before we get into winter meetings conversation, though, there is uh, some news about a guy who we have loved as a prospect for what feels like a long time, and yet I'm not even sure if he's allowed to vote yet, Uh, Jackson Churio who is reportedly, and of course, the way this podcast goes, by the time this comes out, uh, the now 19-year-old Venezuelan prospect will almost certainly have signed this deal. Uh, But there is news that Jackson Churio will become a prospect with the richest contract ever given to a player who has yet to reach the major leagues. Uh, The Milwaukee Brewers and Jackson Churio are closing in on a deal that is expected to be for eight years and nearly $80 million dollars. It'll include reportedly two team options, according to John Heyman. Um, Sam, this is obviously very exciting news for Brewers fans. Give us your thoughts on uh, this Jackson Churio deal as the guy who has been the Jackson Churio drum beater for many, many years. 
Yeah, I mean, it, this is fascinating on many levels. Uh, if Jackson Churio is going to sign a deal, it would have to be record-breaking in some way. And some of the, you know, the money figures that we're hearing bandied about are between 80 and $90 million to get this deal done. So on one hand, you can see why he would take that, right? Like they're getting that much money guaranteed uh, when you were coming off your age 19 season is a big deal. Uh, it would also, I'm not going to say it's going to guarantee his spot on the opening day roster for the Milwaukee Brewers, but it solidifies it at the very least. Um, the Brewers, actually one of their strengths is in the outfield. I mean, obviously they have Christian Yelich there, who is a veteran for that team now, has had some up and down seasons. Uh, they just called up last year, Sal Freelich, Joey Weimer, uh, who got sent down at one point, but Sal Freelich had a pretty solid season there. Garrett Mitchell has bat battled some injuries, but he's super fast, can play a really good center field as well. The Brewers have center field options, but now Churio has the highest ceiling of anybody, and I've long said, like, if Jackson Churio looks ready, he's a player you make room for. And now they're not just making room for, they are making room in their budget for Jackson Churio. So it seems like, like you said, Tyler, there's a decent chance uh, that that deal is going to be sewed up and signed by the time this podcast is live. Uh, it's it's just a fascinating deal on, on multiple sides. You know, I can see why he would take it. It's a lot of money to take, guaranteed, like I said. Uh, but the fact that he's giving up a few free agent years and those club options are in there as well. You know, Jackson Churio potentially is going to be in Milwaukee for a long time, and that's great for Milwaukee. Uh, but, he, you know, he did give up something here. If we got to a point where... You know, who didn't sign an extension when he was a young player and was very, very good as a teenager was Juan Soto. Uh, and Juan Soto is heading into a free agent year next year. He's a name that's going to come up a lot in this next week at the winter meetings and potentially beyond if a deal doesn't happen. Uh, or maybe the Padres don't even decide to trade him. But Juan Soto is setting himself up for a major payday. It worked out. It doesn't always work out. There have been other guys who have signed deals like Evan White, Scott Kingery. Those are the two biggest... And I would say John Singleton, too. Those guys signed big deals before they were really major leaguers, and they didn't meet the expectations of the contracts. But those guys were not Jackson Churio. I can say that pretty confidently. Uh, Churio's deal is going to be breaking Luis Roberts' deal for the largest signed by a player before they reach the major leagues. Robert, I think he certainly met what the contract could be. I don't know if he's necessarily met his ceiling over the years, but he is a very, very good player. Uh, and Churio is right there alongside him. You know, I had some people a few years ago throwing Ronald Acuna Jr. Uh, type comps on Jackson Churio. We'll see how it's going to work. It's all going to come down to the bat because um, he is a pretty good hitter. He hits the ball really hard. He hits it really well to all fields. I guess I should say why he's such an exciting player. He's a 70-grade runner. He has at least plus power as well. He was a 2040 guy last year, and he, he was one of five 2040 guys who are also teenagers in the minor leagues since 1958. It was him, Ronald Acuna Jr., who I mentioned in 2017, Alex Escobar, 1998, Andrew Jones in 1995, that's another big comp, and Jose Cardinal for the Giants in 1961. So he's in really, you know, I, I won't say unprecedented territory, but it's nearly unprecedented territory. Uh, so it's a fascinating deal on all sides. He wouldn't sign it, I don't think, if he wasn't happy to stick around Milwaukee. And, uh, you know, he will be a big piece of their, not only future, but present once that deal is signed.
All right, Sam, you noted the winter meetings are on the docket. Uh, so much coming up at the winter meetings this year is going to be really interesting. Uh, winter meetings uh, session, obviously, so many huge name free agents out there. Shohei Otani, the biggest among them. Um, but what else is coming up as far as it pertains to prospects that the draft lottery, a huge piece of the puzzle, the rule five draft is ahead as well. So much uh, coming up over the next week. Yeah, on Tuesday will be the draft lottery, um, which I think last year was very successful. It, it generated interest in the draft, uh, you know, at, at this point in the calendar. Normally, like draft 100 lists are coming out, and I know Jim and Jonathan on the MLB Pipeline side are working super hard on those right now, but it's it's so far away. Well, now not everything's set yet. We don't know what the draft order is necessarily going to be at the top of the first round. We're going to find out that super soon. So next Tuesday is when the draft lottery will be held. Just to go through real quick, who has the best odds? The A's, the Royals, and the Rockies each have an 18.3% chance at getting the number one overall pick. The White Sox are fourth on that list at 14.7%. The Cardinals at 8.3%. Angels at 6.1%. The Mets at 43 The Pirates at 3.0%. And then everybody else uh, who didn't make the playoffs is 2.0% or less. The only team that cannot get a lottery pick who would be eligible otherwise are the Nationals. Um, that's because of they're a team that uh, puts money into revenue sharing. They are not a team that takes it out of revenue sharing. There's some rules involved that they can't get a lottery pick uh, multiple years in a row. Therefore, they will not be getting the number one overall pick this year. But hey, they got Dylan Cruz last year. That's a pretty good pick that they can sit on for at least a little while uh, longer. We'll see how quickly he's going to make the major leagues himself. So that'll be fascinating on Tuesday. On Wednesday is the Rule 5 draft, uh, which is always fun to cover because the point of that is to get major league opportunities to guys who are rule five eligible, uh, but were left off their 40 man rosters for their parent clubs now. Uh, so we'll see how it goes. Last year was kind of successful in terms of what the rule five draft was. There weren't really stars, but there were a good amount of guys who stuck around guys like Ryan Noda in, in Oakland, uh, Mason Englert in, in Detroit, uh, Thaddeus Ward with the Washington nationals. We're seeing a little bit more success rate of late. Uh, so I'll be interested to see if that means more teams are willing to take guys this year or if that was just speaking to last year's class and the opportunities that they got. So we'll get some answers on that on Wednesday. That also means we'll get some you know, top 30 movement as teams add new guys or some are taken away if they're ranked prospects. So keep an eye on the MLB pipeline top 30 pages uh, to see how things are reflective of what the Rule 5 draft will be. One name I'll just throw out there real quick that I'm going to keep an eye on in the Rule 5 draft uh, is Davison De Los Santos of the Arizona Diamondbacks. He's the highest-ranked prospect who was left unprotected. He's at number five. He had a really difficult year last year, at least in the first half in the D-back system. They've been pushing him pretty aggressively uh, throughout his career uh, with the D-backs. He turned 20 on June 21st last year, uh, spent the year at AA Amarillo, really struggled. They actually sent him back to the complex to work on his swing, and the results really took off in the second half. Mind you, he was also super aggressive. I think his walk rate was like at or below 3%. Uh, so he was swinging at everything, but he was making better contact. He has plus-plus power. If I'm a team that you know isn't really going to contend next year but wants to build up its farm system – I'd consider him. I'm not saying he's going to stick, but get a closer look. Just, you know, draft him as a player. See how he looks in spring training because the the ceiling is pretty high on the guy. 
you're going to have to protect him. He's probably going to be a first baseman in the major leagues. But again, I, it's at least plus plus raw power. He hit some absolute blasts in Amarillo, and and that can translate if if he gets in front of the right hitting coaches. So that's that's one name I'm going to be keeping an eye out for. Uh, we wrote a recent piece, Jonathan Mayo, Jim Callis, and I about each team's most interesting Rule 5 available pick. So check that out on MLB Pipeline. It's a great way to get ready for Wednesday's Rule 5 draft. And then, of course, you know, I, I don't think we've seen, like, the major blockbusters in, in the winter, winter meetings the last few years, but there's always the potential that that could happen. I mean, all the GMs are going to be in one spot. A lot of league officials are going to be in one place. It's never going to be easier to negotiate these deals. So you're hearing a lot of smoke about Dylan Cease, you know, on the trade market. Juan Soto, who we mentioned before, Tyler Glass now is kind of out there as like the Rays seem to be shopping him uh, potentially to save some money. There could be some deals that go down next week. If they don't, they could happen later in the offseason. Who knows? Maybe some of these teams are laying the groundwork for bigger blockbusters, but you never know with the winter meetings. Sam, how many giraffes do you think Jackson Cheerio could throw a ball over? See, I... I get why you're asking the question. His lowest grade is his arm tool. So maybe how many could he hit over? I would love to see it. Uh, he throw can still, it is not he can still do like 12, I'm sure. You know? If oh, he, can, he can do Chapman more than six do, or six yeah, and a half. He can yeah. do more than 10 if an 80 mile an hour fastball can get you to 10 giraffes. Yeah, yeah, you're probably right. I, this is, at what point does that become a scouting tool? Giraffe clearance. It's like I, hit, I have to make some uh, scouting contact. calls. In the next yeah, few weeks. I will be asking. Okay, please let me know what you find out. Yeah, Mason Wynn is somebody I have to write about. Mason Wynn, I'm sure, could throw over 15 drafts, maybe. I know that at some point soon, you're going to be conducting an interview with a prospect, and you're going to think, should I ask him the giraffe question? I know it's going to happen. <laughs> maybe <laughs> spring training. There's there's some boilerplate <laughs> questions I ask at spring training. I'll, I'll add that to the rotation just for you. I'm going to quote you, though. When yeah, they look at me, please do. Please do. Quote me quoting a Reddit post that was quoting Guardian. The Guardian. There we go. Yeah, yeah. do that. All right. Well, our uh, our kingpin of giraffe clearance, Josh Jackson, stops by the show for Ghosts of the Miners coming up next. We interrupt this podcast to bring you another thrilling edition of Ghosts of the Miners. Now, here's your correspondent and host, Joshua Jackson. Welcome back to Ghosts of the Miners, in which all of you out there in Radio Land must identify the legitimate historical ball club or player hiding amidst the fraudulent pair. One once played the old ball game in two countries, the others never showed up anywhere. In the last segment, I asked you which of the following minor league baseball players did at one time exist. A. Duke Pyle B. Ralph Mountain C. Spew Heathcliff You've achieved great heights without any signs of altitude sickness if you picked B. Ralph Mountain who climbed the hill of pro baseball accomplishments across multiple minor leagues in the late 1930s. It looked as though Ralph would play for a cavalcade of teams as a youngster, not a single scout wretched at the sight of Ralph on the field, and he attracted the attention of the Pacific Coast League's Los Angeles Angels as a high school catcher in the Houghton Park neighborhood of Long Beach. 
Assigned to the Serif's Ponca City affiliate in the Class C Western Association for 1935, the young backstop was released in July. He thereby fell off the roster before those Ponca City Angels winged their way to a circuit title that fall. But Mountain began his climb in the 36th season back in the Western Association with the Hutchinson Larks, only to be released early on and picked up in the same circuit by the Pirates-affiliated Bartsville Bucks. There, he made headlines for occasionally forming a unique battery with right-hander Sidney Feltz. They were described in the press as a baseball oddity, on account of both of them requiring glasses. But even with corrected vision, Mountain couldn't see his way clear to sticking around with Bartsville. Of course, Ralph was trying to get thrown up in the organizational ladder, but instead, Pittsburgh sent him to the Jeanette Little Pirates in the Class D Pennsylvania Association in June. In short, the first year in pro ball was a winding road for Mountain, and he didn't get into all that many games across stints with three teams. He spent 37 and 38 with the Vancouver Maple Leafs in the Western International League, and Mountain might have reached his peak with those Leafs in 38 when he made the circuit's all-star team. That elevated performance had Mountain poised to climb new heights, but unfortunately, he hit a plateau. The Vancouver rival Tacoma Tigers purchased his contract 10 days before the calendar flipped to 1939. It'd be a bottom-dwelling view to say things were all downhill from there for Mountain, but Ralph was sickened by his new contract offer from Tacoma, and he was a holdout until April 12. And even after he got the ball rolling, he didn't play quite as well as he had the previous year. Mountain was apparently rostered with the Meridian Bears of the Southeastern League at some point in 1940, but evidence he played is scant, and by that fall, per his draft card, he was working at a brewery in San Francisco and living in the building that's now the Hotel Union. Within a couple years, he was playing for the Army's team at California's Fort Roberts. It's difficult to say with absolute certainty that our Ralph was the same Ralph W. Mountain who was killed in action in the Philippines in 1945, but it seems likely. Either way, it's clear he gave his youth to baseball and to the military during the Second World War. And that's how Mountain set a lofty standard. Now, on to the question for next time. Which of these teams played squeaky clean ball in the minors of yesteryear? A. The Ventura Scrubbers B. The Naples Napkin Makers C. The Troy Washerwomen Want to know the answer? Get into hot water. Or tune into the next Ghost of the Miners. But for now, you'll have to excuse me. My producer, Ben Hill, is doing some holiday shopping, and I've got to sneak his credit card back into his pocket. Final segment of this week's episode of the show before the show. You heard from our good buddy Josh Jackson, who uh, you guys got to see this week. How was that? I mean, it's always a pleasure to, to meet Josh and see Josh and hang out with Josh. Uh, yeah, Josh did a, a lot of interrupting this week. He did. Interrupting in person. It was great. Which is a newsletter reference in case uh, anybody doesn't get that. Uh, one of my favorite parts of Ben's newsletter beyond all the good work Ben does and all the words he puts into newsletter and all the hard work is the Josh Jackson interrupt segment, which is Josh coming in to essentially promote this podcast. Yeah. That's what he's yeah, doing. He's interrupting to, to promote the podcast. Exactly. 
so, and it always comes with a fun picture of Josh literally interrupting somebody. Uh, sometimes it's friends. Sometimes it's just the public in general. Uh, sometimes it's absolutely nobody, but he's acting like somebody's there because he's such a good actor. So we took a lot of shots for that. So make sure you are subscribed to the Ben's Biz newsletter so you can see all the fun Josh Jackson interruptions that will be coming uh, that way very soon. Yeah, it was great to have Josh in town in New York City for a couple of days. Um, you know, he's usually up there in Maine and in his cabin in the woods, and he came all the way to see us in New York City. Um, I had a great moment with Josh. We all went out for a little company outing on uh, Tuesday night. And there happened to be a record store down the street from the restaurant we were meeting at. And I got there a little early, so I was browsing around this record store. And right out in the front, in the kind of, you know, outside of the store, before you even go in, I was browsing through uh, some stacks of records they placed out there. And one of them was Caruso's Greatest Hits, the Italian crooner Caruso. And Josh Jackson had recently made both some jokes on Slack about Caruso. He'd included him um, in a interrupts column. Josh, an anachronistic fellow, uh, loves Caruso and songs of that ilk. You know, anything, uh, the older the better as far as Josh is concerned. So I found this Caruso double LP. And when he, Josh got the restaurant, I said, Josh, I have a present for you. And I went out and took him to the record store and on my own dime bought him the double LP, Caruso's Greatest Hits. And now Josh is the proud owner of a Caruso LP. And I'm just so proud of myself and so happy that Josh will be able to listen to the soothing sounds of Caruso as he writes his latest installment of Ghosts of the Miners. That is pretty great. Um, and for all of you, of course, you can go back through the Ghosts of the Miners archives at MILB.com slash podcast. And uh, that'll do it for this week's episode of the show before the show. For our good buddy Josh Jackson, for Ben Hill, for Sam Dykstra, my name is Tyler Mon. We'll catch you next week. 